Welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspirational people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today's guest is Baswati Bhattacharya, Ayurvedic physician and scientist and author of Everyday Ayurveda. So whereabouts in the world are you today? Today I'm in Benares. I've been here for a couple of months. Is that, is that Varanasi? Is that the same name? Yeah. Okay, because I, I was doing my research and I hadn't heard of that place. But uh... Uh, It's the oldest city in Asia, so it's got about five names, depending on which era you come from. So it was called Kashi from about 10,000 years ago until about um 500 years ago there are a few other names um uh up uh, what's the other one vana akandvana which means old forest um and a bunch of names were here because this was the land where shiva and parvati loved to be because it was intense forest with these very fertile medicinal trees and the river the ganges river running through and it is a beautiful space there's something about the energy and the um, the, the soil, but it also has these interesting channels of the aquifer that's underneath the land that come up to the surface right near the river. And they are secret channels that no, like, you know, foreigners don't know about, but people that live here know about, and they are direct water from the aquifers and they are filled with minerals. And so people who know where they are will take their little vessels, right? They're they have to be made of either bronze, silver, tin, or uh, brass is like a cheap alternative. You have to go there and pick up from that particular where it flows out. And only there's only 14 of them, but we all know where they are. You get this one, it's very healing water. So people who have, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, we, we have them take that water. And so there are all these little secret things like this in Benares that you're not going to find in most places of the world. And oh, the connection says it doesn't like me right now. Can you hear me? You can hear me, right? Yeah. Are you originally from that area then? No, I'm from Bengal. My parents are Bengali, but mm-hmm. I have grown up in different parts of the world. Um, Calcutta was the childhood. But even during my childhood, I was doing a lot of traveling. So, spent time in Europe, the U.S., and that's before I started traveling on my own as an adult. So I have my own kind of places I've lived. Okay, because I've read you divide your time between Manhattan and Banaras. So, yeah. So Banaras is the British name, right? They couldn't pronounce Varanasi. They. They, they just, British messed up everything in this country. But um, <laughs> they couldn't pronounce Paranasi, so they said Banaras. And then it just kind of stuck because all of the city documents and the governmental stuff was all Banaras police, Banaras land, Banaras this, Banaras regulations. Though some of us still call it Banaras, but um, I guess the, the university is called Kashi. So those of us who know it, we say Kashi University. But then you say it to an American, they're like, where is Kashi University or other Indians? 
So then we have to say, oh, Benares Hindu University, and then you know. So the Benares thing kind of, kind of stuck. I came here to live um, because I got into BHU. Uh, I don't know if the bio says that I had a Fulbright, but I was asked where I wanted to go for the Fulbright. And I ha happened to study incurable diseases as a, I don't know, you could say it, a hobby within my profession. And um, Benares is one of the places that has this. So I came here to do the Fulbright, learned about immunity and various cures. And uh, the first year that I was here was the happiest year of my life. I, I just was thrilled at what I was seeing. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to get a house here. And this is where I'm going to spend some time. And so I have, I'm going to take these off. I think you can still hear, hear me. You can still hear me, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so then I've been in Benares since 2013, which isn't that long. And at the same time, uh, my house in Calcutta was, um, by people who feel that those of us who have more than one home shouldn't have more than one home. So they just squat and take over. And my mom said, let it go. You're not going to spend your life being, you know, in Calcutta. And so if you fight it, they, every time you leave, they'll go break into the house anyway. Just let's just sell the house. And we didn't want to because it was my childhood house, but I finally got rid of it. And I wanted a place in India because I really have serious concerns about the United States. And I have serious concerns about parts of Europe as well. So I do have one place in, in Europe, but I, um, I wanted something here. And then, you know, there's healing elements here. And I just felt that as I get older, it's going to be good to have that. Yeah, well, then there was a world health crisis. When you say incurable diseases, I know that coronavirus there was no western medicine for it was there a co was there an ayurvedic medicine absolutely there is that's what i'm treating people with and that's what i've been treating my whole world of patients that i have i i have been helping them with it and we have gone to the rooftops and tried to help everyone shouting you know do this do this and do this but if people don't want to listen i think one of the biggest lessons for me is that people who don't want to heal won't heal and so I have a bunch of, uh, like I was thinking, I wonder what he's going to write the song about when he interviews me. And I was thinking, yeah, one of my mottos is not everyone deserves Ayurveda. Not everyone. <laughs> because you can bring them to it. But, you know, the, the texts say take 10 steps towards Ayurveda and Ayurveda will then take 20 steps towards you. But you have to express your interest. You have to show you want to use Ayurveda. I, otherwise, it's just, it's just not going to work. And you're going to find that um, the skeptics and the people who feel that um, what should we say? Allopathy is better. And if there was any evidence for Ayurveda, then why don't they show it to us? Why don't they show it to the FDA or to the you know, the, the various regulatory agencies, it must not work because there's no scientific evidence for it. And part of me says, okay, I can show you the scientific evidence, but you're not willing to see it. And part of me says, well, it's not scientific according to you because your science doesn't allow for truth. Your science weeds out anything that it can't understand. So just like you have publications that say, we looked at all publications that are out there in the literature that are in English. And then you lose all the other scientists that publish in every other language. 
How is this truth? So in the same way, if you, you don't read Sanskrit and you say that all these books we have, Chak Samhita and Sushit Samhita, all these books, they aren't real because uh, the Sanskrit is something you don't understand. These are English translations because I'm not fluent in Sanskrit. And if you still don't want to read those, and so you discount all of that as evidence, then why don't you also discount Brownwald's heart disease or William's obstetrics? Because that's just what William said. You didn't prove it yourself. Where's the evidence behind it, right? And so I've gone hunting down what evidence means, what scientific evidence-based medicine means. And as a person who's trained first in neuroscience and pharmacology, and then in public health, and then in modern medicine, and then in your uh, nutrition, and then in Ayurveda, I've, you know, I've traveled toward, and I'm not even talking about my certificates and various small courses I've done, but these degrees that I have have allowed me to learn systematically from the leading, you know, authorities. And it's, a, it's so like, it's out there, but it's so amazing how people will ignore the data that they don't want to see. And that was exactly what happened with COVID, as you alluded to. It was um, sad that so many people died. A lot of people died of COVID that they didn't need to be that sick. They didn't need to suffer as much as they did. And, you know, I've cried a lot of tears around relatives and um, friends and people that live in this building who either did not want to listen to what was out there, did not want to make those choices for self-care or got into hospitals where the, the, the powers and the doctors that, you know, were watching were either too tired, too ill-educated, too close-minded, or just too lazy to help the patients in the ways that they needed. And Ayurvedic doctors are up in arms trying to contribute since March of 2020. And they have systematically been shut out. And that just is, okay, well, fine. There's the, the pharmacy, you know, money, and there's the politics, and there's the AMA or the IMA or whoever medical association that wants to say what they say. That's all on this side. But what about patients? What about the ones that really do want help? So I try to interface with some of them, the ones that don't want Ayurveda. They want it in the form of a pill and they want it to be as convenient as I live my life and do what I do. I just want to pop a pill. If they want that and they don't want to change what's within, then I kind of say, you know, you're not ready for Ayurveda. I think it's really good if you just pop that pill, take those steroids or take those statins or take those... Um, proton pump inhibitors. By the way, they cause cancer after a while, but it's okay because you like taking those pills. And then I go back and I sing my song. Not everyone deserves <laughs> because, because I, you know, I try. I really mm. have uh, tried to develop a voice in English to the mainstream with the credentials that the mainstream will listen to. I've really tried to be that voice that they would listen to. And if they still don't want to listen, and they certainly don't want to listen to the Indians who have accents or who are not credentialed in the way they want. If they still don't want to listen, then, you know, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. You can take a horse to water and you can't force it to drink. Well, it's actually in Ashtanga Iridium, isn't it? Bhagavata said he gave these rules for choosing a patient and there were these reasons that you should refuse a patient. But that was written in a time when 100% of everything going on was Ayurveda. There was no mm. modern medical 
marketing going on saying, mm. take this medicine, this will help you heal. And all these nutritionists who have these cockamamie rules that are changing every couple of years. Milk is bad for you. Milk is good for you. Wine is bad for you. Wine is great for you. Oh, have resveratrol. That's the best way. Oh, have this dietary supplement. Oh, eat this food. Um, eat uh, multiple meals in a day. No, do intermittent fasting. No, do no snacks and have three meals a day. It's so confusing for people. Yeah. And Ayurveda is there, but you know, how do you, how do you, um, how do you talk to a patient who has been whitewashed mm. all times intended? All these different diets there, they're like, they're like the broken clock. No, they're right twice a day or twice a year because with Ayurveda, it's so beautiful. It's always seasonal living. So yes, you do the intermittent fasting at this time of the year, and then you eat a lot in the winter. And then, you know, you, you, you drink the wine when you need a digestive fire. And then, so everything in this right time and it's right place. That's right. And, and also if you're a dosha that requires it, right? Right. So what I see in the Indian uh, Ayurvedic websites is that they talk about contraindications. And I say, it's not about contraindications, but cautions. There are people of certain doshas that should not be doing exactly the thing that is recommended for that ritu, because inside their body, that ritu is not going on. Uh. <laughs> it's only in their environment. And so to understand that nuance, um, I mean, I, I do it all the time with students. I do all these introductory to Ayurveda courses for different groups. And the same questions come up. And it just reflects that the Western way of thinking is so predominant that if they do get it, the most dangerous people are the ones that have just started learning Ayurveda and then try to bully their way into getting a doctor to tell them that what they want to do is correct. <laughs> and then you're sitting there trying to, well, what about your enemy? No, but I took the quiz and the quiz said that I'm a pitta. So I have to do this. Like, okay, but what about... But that does sound like a pitta though, to be fair. Very aggressive. And, <laughs> and it sounds like an aggravated, vitiated pitta too, who usually have a lot of problems with their vata. So then they want to know, why shouldn't I use a vata pacifying diet? Because we need to address your vata first. Sorry, I said, oh, why um, an aggravated but the diet is not right. And I, I say, well, because we need to deal with your vata first. No, we don't. I tested and my quiz score doesn't show that I'm talking about Okay. So, and I, you know, I, I try to turn in and take mm. them through and um, certain patients are really difficult. And then I have to sing my song. Not everyone <laughs> deserves everything. <laughs> Please go back to your allopathy. Sometimes I say, well, I like naturopathy. Tell me the difference between naturopathy and Ayurveda. And if they have that, you know, that, that countenance, I just say, you should do naturopathy. Mm. You, you know, you do really well with naturopathy. You like it. You believe in it. You like reading so-and-so's books. Do, well, I tried Ay Ayurveda and I didn't like it because homeopathy works. Great. You use homeopathy. But which one is right? I say, they're all right. How many ways mm -hmm. can you climb a mountain? You know, there's more than one path up a mountain. So I've seen it, I've done it, and I've met with my teachers who kind of laugh about how they have seen it and done it. And I, um, I don't want to say I'm jaded, but I do know patterns right away when I see them in patients now, which I didn't when I first started doing it, especially because I'm an allopath trained, right, under biomedical 
Like I'm on one level, I'm in love. I have many lovers. One is biochemistry. I love biochemistry. If you tell me that this is the biochemical way something works, it clicks into this entire body of knowledge I have around molecular biology and DNA and RNA and cell biology and how these proteins release these particular chemicals through receptors. I love biochemistry. And oops, I love drugs because my pharmacology background taught me about how drugs do amazing things in the body, whether they're made by the body, like chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, or whether they're like uh, gut chemicals like vasoactive intestinal peptide VIP, or whether they're external chemicals that are found in the body, like you know, opioid, opioids or opioid type drugs, or whether they're actual external um, drugs and they've been invented. But I really love those botanical drugs that nature has made that seem to somehow beautifully interact with the human body. Um, I guess because nature, you know, has its own lock and key model. So, um, yeah, you were talking about the difficulty of patients. I mean, I studied to be an Ayurvedic practitioner, but I didn't have the patience for patients. And, and now I, I just did an online course with a, with a doctor in Switzerland, but, um, which one was it Simone Hunziger's course? No, it was, um, I've forgotten the name. It was a few years ago. My mind's gone blank. Was it Dr. Bharat? Well, he was in UK though. Hmm. No, I'll come, it'll come. It'll come to me. So you don't remember your teacher. That's actually a very good sign because it tells why you're not interested in seeing patients. Because one of the magics of Ayurveda that is revealed through be, the between the lines is that your teacher will actually um, inspire you to whichever direction you go. So if your teacher happens to be much more interested in plants, you'll find yourself loving plants. Or if your teacher is really interested in cooking, like, yeah, I just love this cooking. Some of it's direct, you know, what you're in suspect. Some of it's between the lines. And the personalities of the teachers really come through. And so one of the things that your Ayurveda has done for me as I started teaching is it's really made me walk the talk more because oh, yeah. students would be watching things I didn't even notice. Like if I put this bindi on and it's like crooked, my students would pick it up and it would... Uh, make me think about it. Or if I, like, let's say my hair is, you know, out of the way, I'm not presentable. They would pick it up. And it made me realize I need to be a role model, not only in the way I look, but in the way that I teach. And so I used to joke around a lot. And there's a lot of stuff in modern medicine, which is unethical. Um, and I didn't really think about it because modern medicine just allows for it. It's part of the code of allowance or the they talk about how it shouldn't be there, but it's there. There's harassment academically, there's sexual harassment, there's financial ridiculousness, especially I'm talking in the US system. And um, it's also there in Ayurveda, but the way that I started training, which is the way that I think most everyone should train is through Guru So if you don't know the name of your teacher, you're probably not learning Ayurveda because Ayurveda is really clear that you should be connected to a human energy experience in order to gain the real knowledge of Ayurveda. Otherwise, it's kind of like just reading an encyclopedia and you don't, mm. you don't have the... the um, well, knowledge in books stays in books, they say in Ayurveda. Sparkles, the sparkly yeah. parts of it, right? The sparkles but, of wisdom. 
Well, yeah, it used to be handed down with the sutras from you'd remember one line and then the teacher next day would give you the next line and you'd remember the whole sutra and then you have them all, you remember the whole medical book. Kind of. I mean, I don't know if it was exactly that way, but yeah, kind of. But that was kind of more what was taught. It was much more dependent on nature. So you wouldn't learn it one that way, but it was based on the aptitude too. Mm. And there's a lot of aptitude-based learning in music, for example, where a music teacher knows what you can handle and they'll go over things again and again. Like if you don't understand the chords, the teacher will teach them to you again and again and again, because until you get to that level of competence, you can't go to the next level, right? Or let's say your fingers are too small for that instrument. Either the instrument's got to get smaller or your fingers have to get bigger. And so they wait and they allow time to do a lot of healing to where that interface is perfect between the human hand or part, mouth, whatever, and the instrument. And uh, I think Ayurveda had some of that. Whereas, you know, if you learn via auto-tune and you just learn how to do things, you never really own it. It's mm. always owned by an external force. I think there are a lot of people learning Ayurveda that way because they're very rigid about what they know to be true. And so you probably know I run something called the master classes, Binshari master classes, which um, are not for beginners. You have to have done some, like, we don't want people in there saying, Excuse me, what does that word vata mean? What does pitta mean? You want people to have that because everyone else in the room doesn't want to slow down and, and get that again. Um, but people come at all different levels because you can have 10 people that are Ayurvedic practitioners. And because it is not a competence-based learning system, especially when they're online classes at your own pace, people don't know a lot, which should have bridged them from the knowledge into that awareness of where they can practice. And since I started out as a practitioner, I always make every lesson, every sutra, every teaching to have practical aspects. And so people love the masterclasses because wherever they're at, they can always get more practical. So the masterclass is Dhinacharya, which is daily routine. So the institute is called the Dhinacharya Institute. It's been around since 2007 in New York. We had a physical space on Lexington Avenue, right near the little India Curry Hill part of town. And that was there for almost not quite 10 years. And then when I decided to do the Fulbright, um, my lawyer said I shouldn't leave the clinic open because it was clinic by day. Mm -hmm. Part of it was guest house by night, where I'd have musicians actually who were traveling to New York come and stay. And then on weekends, and usually like one night a week, we would have Dhinacharya classes. So I used to teach the first level, which is the, you know, the basic first year, first 200 hours or 300 hours of class. And then we had a second year course, which would take you to about 650 hours or so. We had gurus, like actual one-to-one -one gurus. Um, so each student would be assigned a different guru in the New York area. And I taught there for many years. And we had people coming in from India and all over the U.S., as teachers, and I preferred them to come from India because I really wanted to expose more authentic ideas to the U.S., but some of them were my colleagues from America, and uh, the tuition went mostly into it because I was a physician, so I didn't need the income from that. So I was really devoted to using students' um, experiences with the teachers' experiences and creating this, this fellowship, this community. 
when I came here, um, I moved things online. It was a um, conference call system. Zoom started up, I think in 2012 or something. And so we started doing the classes online. So we have got hundreds of sessions recorded and people can just order those and then they watch the historic sessions. And what we did is we took, um, well, you know this book very well because you already are a practitioner. Well, we took the Ashtagurudayam and we went chapter by chapter as the guru allows, which means we didn't do the first chapter. Um, and we started with the second chapter, which was Dhinacharya, third chapter, Ritacharya, fourth chapter, the Vegas, fifth chapter, Dravadravya, which was the liquid food, sixth chapter, which was solid foods. So we had not only the basic principles, but we had um, practical things of Dhinacharya, Ritacharya, and how do you do them? And I've never seen a class where you have students from every, almost every continent interacting and talking about Ritacharya and the, <laughs> the rituals of this. It was amazing. I learned so much from students in Argentina and South Africa and Australia and China and Japan and Alaska as well as the, you know, the crowd from um, different parts of the U.S. And like someone living in Hawaii has a very different lifestyle than someone living in Massachusetts. And so to compare and say, well, how would I do that? How would I do that ritual of oil pulling? Or how would I do that ritual of, um, you know, first morning water? And it was fascinating how you adjust those for different seasons. And then we've moved through the chapters one by one. We do shloka by shloka. We have people pronounce the words so they learn and hear some Sanskrit words. And um, they love the mukhamukham, like what you were saying. When you, you say the sutra, they learn the sutra. And um, I used to put together really nice workbooks for those as well. So people, they love coming out of their specific classes and then working with someone who's not going to, judge them for being, you know, at this level versus that level, but just say here, wherever you are, move forward, learn. And the teachers that I have are, um, I have to say almost none of them were that great as teachers when they started, because they just in India never learned, but I used the best pedagogy that I learned. And I said, okay, so this is what the students need. And they're this and this and this and this level. So how do we teach them and how do we teach them? Because a lot of them come into Ayurveda as patients. They come in not because they just want to help other people, but because they themselves are sick. So they're kind of posing. Like there are a lot of journalists who write articles on Ayurveda and they'll be interviewing me. And then as soon as they get courageous enough, they'll start talking about the rash that they have or the irritable bowel syndrome that they have. And it's really obvious to me they have no intention of publishing anything. They're just posing as a freelance journalist because they want a free medical consultation. Can I talk to you about some of the problems I'm having at the moment? <laughs> but no, it's true. I mean, that's what breaks people into Ayurveda. If they weren't sick, yeah. then they go into yoga. Yeah. And they do their yoga practice. And then somewhere their mom, their husband, their, their kid, you know, mm. they themselves have something that they can't solve. And yoga in most places it's not yoga therapy. My teacher's a yoga therapist. And when I met her, I just liked her energy. I didn't have any idea she was a yoga therapist, but we started talking and pretty soon it was so obvious she uses yoga as a medical intervention. And I grew up kind of just knowing that that was it because in Calcutta, you know, every third person is related to either 
Paramahansa Yogananda or Vivekananda or, you know, the Aurobindo or one of these amazing yogis who, who uh, went down to Pondicherry or went to America. And so we knew that yoga is a therapeutic medical system. So she was using it as medicine uh, and she uses it for very serious patients. But most yoga people are well. And if they're not well, then they start moving into what, you know, some people call the sister science of Ayurveda. So I think that I'm thinking about the song here because I know you have your own ideas and I was a very, <laughs> that was a, a lovely chorus. And, uh, but I, I'm, I'm thinking because you've been under observation for so many years, teaching Dinacharya and your students are picking you up on everything. Maybe you could just talk us through, because I think the listeners will get a lot from that. It's just talking through your your dinacharya, your routine, just to give us these nuggets. I have a book here. Oh, a copy on the way top shelf. Have you seen the book every day, Irina? Uh, I've seen the cover. It has nothing to do with dinacharya. Okay. I rebelled. Um, you rebelled against Vagbita. I No, I rebelled. Then why would they put that on the cover? I expected a sun, like dinacharya being the day, the sun. And then what they did is they said, no, people that want to learn Ayurveda, the first basics of Dinacharya, don't even trust Ayurveda. So you've got to get them something that's going to be so beautiful. It's going to captivate them. They're going to see it. And in their mind, turmeric is Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. So there is a little psychologic uh, subliminal play on the roundness and the orange sun in the pool. Oh, I didn't get that. Did you get that? <laughs> no. And it's brilliant. And I have to give all credit to Millie, my publisher at Penguin, who is brilliant. And that's why she is what she is. And so um, it's been my surprise to uh, see what's happened with this book. First of all, it's a bestseller in India. In a place where people already know the Nacharya, but then they don't know it. So they think they know it because these are the rules that handed down. So earlier this morning, I was talking to someone who was saying, how much did we lose of the actual wisdom because the British outlawed Sanskrit cut out the tongues of the teachers if they ever spoke Sanskrit, which included a lot of Ayurvedic teachings. And so it, it just reduced itself to little fragments of what actually was there. So if you go to the Brahmins today, who do the rituals. They know the rituals, but they don't understand or connect them to the meetings. And so a lot of people do uh, Dinacharya. So in Sanskrit, it's pronounced Dinna because no has to get released from the vowel Dinacharya. In Hindi, it's pronounced Dincharya or Dincharja. So Dincharja is what they know that they do in the morning. So do you want me to talk about? Let's go to details. Yeah. Let's go down to the nuts and bolts of right from when those, the first brain waves start to stir and the first eye opens. So as my yoga teacher says, you don't need a clock to tell you on the outside, like from your phone or from a physical clock, your clock is inside. So today we've learned from the biochemical masters that there are things called clock genes. We were awarded a Nobel prize a few years ago that there are these genes that turn on and turn off based on the clock. So the question was, where's the clock? In the pineal gland, which seems to sense light, there is a mechanism by which the human body knows these rhythms. It knows the day-night rhythm. It knows the lunar rhythm of new moon, 
full moon, new moon, full moon. And it seems to know the rhythm of long days, which we'll call summer, and short days, which we'll call winter. And then the in-between, where it's equinox, which means equal night, equal day, 12 and 12. And then back up to long days, and then you know, short days. And so this rhythm that is happening in the body or in the environment is picked up by the body, the human body. And we have mechanisms. So we have our pineal gland for our daily rhythms. We have our menstrual cycle or our testosterone, werewolf on the full moon, men having like sexual prowess on the full moon, and then being uninterested on the new moon. We have the change of clothes and the change of, as you were saying, the digestive fire is very high on the days when there's low, like less light. And then when the sun is depleting us with its abundant overabundance of heat, those are the days where our bodies digestive fire is less. And so there are these cascades and I'll call them cycles. And the word for cycle in Sanskrit is ritu. So knowing this, your whatever time of day it is, uh, sorry, whatever uh, sunrise time of day it is in the year and wherever you are based on your latitude and your altitude, you will have your particular way of knowing when the day starts and that should come in your inside, in your brain, in your, your, not just your brain, but in your body. And so people who are true yogis will wake up on intention. I was always surprised that my dad could do this. My dad was an amazing man that had this entire part of his life before we were even born, before he moved from the villages of India to the cities of India and then from there to cities of Europe. And this part of it, he had to keep hidden. Um, and the whole Heidi thing is part of the whole British conquest and the, you know, what we talked about earlier of um, things being forbidden. But he would wake up on intention. So he would just, my mom would say, don't you want to set an alarm? He'd say, I'll wake up. And sure enough, he would wake up. And I have learned that ability now, but I will say to myself, I want to wake up before dawn. Okay, so this year that was around five. So I want to wake up before then. So I'll wake up like right before five o'clock, look at the clock and I'll say, okay, guess what time it is. Guess what time it is. I'll say, okay, I think it's about five or it's about four fifty, And I'll look at the clock and it's like four fifty two, four forty eight, mm-hmm. And I'm always impressed that I can do that. But a lot of my friends who are really yogis can do that. The rest of us who can't, or the rest of them who can't have to use the clock. So Ayurveda says, Brahma Get up with vigor and with enthusiasm in the Brahma Mahut. So this is dawn, and I'm with this 48 minutes. Then the Mahurta right before dawn is from dawn minus 48 minutes. And Brahma Mahurta is the one that's here. So it's 48 to 96 minutes before dawn. So approximately get up like an hour before, 45 minutes before dawn. Do your morning rituals, which we'll go through right now. And is and that is that dawn when the sun comes over the horizon, or is that dawn when the the first light comes into the? So you know, I wasn't there talking to the guys that wrote it down, but there's twilight, there's nautical twilight, and there's dawn. And I think it depends on where you are in the world, because dawn could mean when the sun rises, you know, to where you can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that when it actually shone its light onto the earth, mm-hmm. right? So if you're living in a place where, let's say I have a forest right there on my Eastern horizon, 
So I don't see the dawn right when it's actually dawn. I see it probably five minutes after it's dawn. And when I see it, the sun is already, uh, so you know it goes from very red to red to orange to orange-yellow, and then it's so high in the sky. It's above your, your chakra. It's like this high, and then you can't look at it. But there is a period of time for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, that you can actually look at it. And that period varies on how far you are from the equator. So it depends on where you are, right? If you're in Alaska, it's going to be different than if you're in Ecuador. But the idea is that you look at the dawn for that whatever period of time you get when the redness of the sun is closest to the infrared. So you have the visible spectrum, which is from red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Right, that's your visible that the human eye can see. And on this side of violet is called superviolet or ultraviolet. So we have ultraviolet A, ultraviolet B. And on this side of red, we have infrared. So the infrared is actually the healing part of the rays, which now modern medicine knows about. If you go to photomedicine centers, there's a big uh, photomedicine center at Harvard. They're doing research on photomedicine. And yet, I know a couple of scientists there, none of them are even aware of the wisdom of Ayurveda, which is really sad, actually. Um, I'm trying to get one of them to, to enter this wisdom, this human wisdom into their research. And the infrared rays value is actually known in modern medicine. In fact, you can go to a dermatologist or to a sports medicine physician, and they will take these pro kind of rods and they will put them over your you know, injured shoulder or uh, for a dermato, for, uh, dermatologist, they'll put them over abrasions on the face or scar tissue. And that infrared will go several layers deep and heal those cells and actually allow for deep healing to occur from the surface down. And they can heal tendons, they can heal skin tissue in the dermis. And this is actually very valuable for you know, medicinal purposes. And so, so we sh do you look at the sun in the morning, then you go out and, and... So I'm connecting exactly to that, right? So the detailed medical part of it is this usage, but the Ayurvedic part is, yes, exactly. You wake up in the morning and you get free 15 minutes of infrared treatment. <laughs> and so what is the ritual that we have in Ayurveda that we should do as we look at the sun? The Surya Namaskar. So you face east, you do your Surya Namaskar, you come down and you do your, you know, your 10, 12 poses and you've got your face looking at the sun, you've got your body looking at the sun, you take in the sun and you only do it until the sun is pretty high in the sky. So you get about 15 minutes or you go for a walk or you sit down with a cup of tea if you're, you know, not well, but you look in the Eastern direction and you take those rays into your body. You are also making vitamin D and the infrared rays the value that we pay for when we go to the doctor is free and available to every person, every animal. In addition, that time is when the trees that have been sitting in the night wake up and say, oh, there's sun. Okay, wait, the sun went down here yesterday in the west. I'll turn this way and open up my leaves to the east and I'll start photosynthesizing. And that photosynthesis that's happening, taking in the rays, but that movement is like an entire factory from the Arctic to the Antarctic in that 
strip of longitude where it's sunrise for that 15 minutes wow. shifts where there's an entire factory of photosynthesis that just wakes up. So if you've ever watched in, you know, Italy or Amsterdam, those factory cities where at, let's say it starts at nine and about 845, this exodus of people will start moving into the factory, like huge numbers, 5,000 people moving into the factory. And by 915, they're all in. And then at 455, suddenly an exodus of people will move out, right? There's a huge <laughs> flow. You can feel the vata, the movement, the flow out of the factory at the end of the day. So from the Arctic to the Antarctic, that strip of longitude gets this massive movement of trees opening up for photosynthesis, whether they're trees or shrubs or, you know, whatever green being it is, it will open up. And that is the underlying movement on a subtle energy level that have been thought of that. Wow. That's why yeah. four to seven AM. And then at the end of the day, the factories close, right? The trees close down and say, time to stop photosynthesizing and move into our other oxidative cycles where we're going to process all those little carbon compounds that we made from photosynthesis. And so that is the time that massive movement creates vata. So I'm trying to go back and forth between modern medicine and nature and the Ayurvedic rituals because these reasons were understood. They were probably in the texts that the Portuguese and the French and the British burned or stole. I'm actually convinced that a lot of them are still sitting in Austria and, you know, the cities and libraries of Cambridge and Oxford and all, and they just won't let the Indians have access to them because uh, they somehow come out with these inventions that are spookily very, very similar to Ayurveda, and they claim that they've invented them. I'm like, yeah, you think you invented those? You took those out of those Sanskrit books and you translated them. And then you claimed that they were your discovery. You really think that you learned about time when we had the goddess Kali for so long? You really think Stephen Hawking came up with all of those theories on his own and didn't have any influence from reading the Upanishads, the Puranas, the Gita, or any of the Indian philosophical texts? Really? I mean, we would call that plagiarism if someone in India suddenly discovered something that the Americans had already thought of. They'd say, that's already out there. You just thought of it, that's already ours and it's patented. But Indians who've come up with all this philosophy, somehow, I won't even call them Indians. It was before the time of India. It was the Bharatiya philosophy, right? It was the Ayurvedic and Vedic philosophy. Those people knew that knowledge and the reasons have been pulled away um, yeah. or, or detached from it. So I'm trying to reattach it so that you can, like when I told you about the plants, it's obvious to you, right? Mm. Like, wow, that makes sense. That's why Vapa is Vata. And if you take that time of mourning, which is what it is during this early morning rituals, before dawn, you're doing all this stuff to clear out your senses. So the ritual is you get up right before dawn, before you get out of bed. You lay still, completely still, and think about your gut and what it's saying to you. And maybe it's saying, I feel cramps, or maybe it's saying, I feel bloated, or maybe it's saying, I didn't digest my food last night, and you ate too much, or there was too many glasses of wine, I'm feeling queasy, or it says, I am super hungry, you did not eat enough dinner last night. Or it's saying, I'm in pain here or there, or something's pulling at me, or hey, you're about to get your period. You're getting those funny, funny, achy feelings. 
whatever the message is, if it says to you even, hey, you know what? You need to get up and go to the bathroom. Then those messages are things you need to listen to. Usually the call to go to the bathroom is something we're so conditioned about in, in modern society because we don't want to go in our pants that we already know to listen to that. But what about all the other messages that are that is telling us? Ayurveda says, lay completely still and listen. And you will take your first brain, which is your cranial brain, your spinal cord, and connect it to your second brain, which is your gut brain, which actually has more neurons and connections or synapses than your first brain has. So take that time to connect the two. And if you do this every day, once a day, every day, you will have such a connection that if the gut needs to give you some kind of emergency message, like your gut instinct, <laughs> your, you know, I knew it in my gut, my, you know, uh, gut told me, then that connection will be reestablished. And there are a lot of people that ignore their guts. But if you do these, uh, if you read these business books where they talk to CEOs, they say, how did you know to make that? you know, billion dollar decision. He said, you know, I use my gut instinct. But what about logic? Yes, I was trained to be logical as an engineer, but when it comes to making business decisions, I use my gut instinct. So business people are validating that the gut instinct is important. But for some reason, as scientists and doctors, we poo-poo that instinctive knowingness that we have about our own health. And a lot of times people know that they shouldn't do things, but they still do them. And then they laugh about it. They giggle about it. They're, oh, dumb me. I had too much to drink. Well, you're not laughing about something that's funny. You're, you're commenting on the tragedy that you're not listening to your body talking to you. And once you start listening to your body talking to you, you'll be so wise. You'll actually have much more wisdom in what you do. You'll have real power, which is that, you know, what they say, the inner power. So you take the ritual of laying still and listening to your gut. And it might say to you something totally, it might say to you, the guy that's laying next to you is a guy you should divorce. <laughs> it's something you don't want to hear because you just made a, a, a commitment for life, right? Or you might be laying there and listening to your gut and say, you're pregnant. A lot of women will tell me, you know, I woke up and I just felt like I was pregnant. And then I had to wait five weeks to find out that I was actually pregnant, but I remember the morning that I knew it. And as much as I told people, they wouldn't believe me, but I knew. How did you know? It's because you connected your first brain to your second brain. So the gut. After that, they say you should lean over, twist over to the side and touch the floor. So some people will say, that's completely impractical. My bed is six feet off the floor. Okay. But if you twist over, what you're doing is you're making your gut move, which is not a natural movement during sleep. And it wakens your gut and says, he's woken up. Get ready. It's time to send things down and out, up on a bayou, right? It's time to send things down and out. And then soon after that, we'll clear everything out. So if there's anything in the back room that you need to clear out, now's the time to bring it into the gut. Okay, so you twist and then you come back and you sit up. And most people will notice that as soon as they sit up, even if they didn't need to go to the bathroom while they were lying down, as soon as they sit up, they need to go. And that's especially true for pittas, but it's true for everyone that's healthy that has good digestive fire. So you get up, go to the bathroom. Now today, 
90, it might be less because there's so many poor people today being, becoming homeless, but let's say it's 85% of people who have a bathroom in their house that are not homeless, that are not living in a refugee camp, that are not living, you know, in a tin hut. But let's say you have a bathroom attached to your house. All you have to do is get up and walk over to the bathroom, hopefully close the door, and then ablutions, which means get rid of your bowels, contents, and your, uh, usually it's your bladder contents and you pee first, and then it's your bowel contents, you poop second. But there are people that have to venture out. So there's a lot of people that have to get from their tent or from their cabin or from their dormitory room down the passageway to a place where they can actually excrete. So generally you want to take a lota or a, um, a, a, a vessel of water with you so you can clean and you head out to the, the outside. So there's some rules that most of us who grew up in India know about how to excrete out in the wilderness, out in nature. And crouching as well? Huh? Having a crouch as well, not sitting like in on the Western toilet with your legs down, but feet. That's right. That's right. Up. Not only do we know that part, but we also know that we should cover our head like this when we, when we poop because it actually shields the wind and the sun away and it gives some privacy. Um, but most people will have a, a nice, you know, warm something to uh, cover themselves with. You don't want people identifying you when you're defecating. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so there's that part of it, but then there's also the crouching part. And so in the book that I was writing, I was like, how do I write about this? It's such a, a, a very, you know, um, taboo topic. How do I write about it? I've done so much counseling with patients around peeing and pooping and sex and masturbation and everything else and delivering babies, everything that goes on with the exit ports of the pelvis, because people don't know. Generally, we assume that our grandparents um, or our parents or our aunt or someone uh, taught us, but not everyone was taught. There are a lot of people who were, whatever situations, you know, they weren't taught and they don't know. So I've had people who have regular UTIs or urinary tract infection. They can't figure out why, I can't figure out why, why they've been to doctor after doctor for years and years. And actually, I had a doctor who asked her, can you see her? I've seen her so many times. She has these recurring <laughs> UTIs, and I don't know why. I said, okay. So I, I, as a favor, I had the next room from him in our clinic. And so I said, okay, I'll see her. So I saw her, and I just said to her, so do you sit when you poop, or do you squat? And she said, I, I sit on a toilet, a regular toilet. I said, you mean like an American toilet? She said, yeah. And I said, and just, um, sorry to be graphic, but can you show me? She was wiping from back to front. Basically, what she was doing, she was tracking feces from her oh my god backside opening into her front side opening, and she was getting recurrently infected. And she just didn't know because she just learned to use toilet paper this way. And Americans, for as clean as they say they are, they use toilet paper. They don't even clean. So you know, bidet is what we do. I I have a Mm. place in Paris. This is what the French do, but um, people usually learn to clean with water. And in America, they just use soft, soft paper, and they basically track the residue from one part of the perineum. Perineum is that whole area at the bottom of your pelvis between your legs. Mm -hmm. So back to front, they track from one part to the other, 
and they leave residues and then they get skin breakdown and they get rashes and they get this and they get that. Well, I, I'm, I'm very hairy down there as well. I mean, that, it's not as if you're even right. clean. It's a mess that's down there. No, it's like getting so, stuck. And then there's wrinkles like around the testicles. There's like those little uh, wrinkly areas. And so, and that's there so that as the sexual act happens and there's more tautness versus less, there's some room to grow, so to speak. And for women, there's also room so that they can, you know, have a comfortable sexual experience and also stretch open when the baby is coming out. And there's, there's just a lot of capacity for amazing functions to happen. But if you don't understand it and you're not cleaning that area properly, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. So oh, I mean, anyway. we, live in, we live in Italy here. And um, when my girlfriend goes to other countries, she can't, because when the woman has a period as well, it, without a B-day, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, we have to have showers every, a few times a day. So it's, the B-Day is multifunctional. B-Day is multifunctional, but it's also, if you come to India, there are also ways of dealing with the menstrual experience, which women all around the world have to do. And I've actually thought about writing about this. There's a wonderful woman named Sainu Joseph who has written books about the cycle of the female and how to, and it's in English. She's from South India. And, um, there are people in India that read the book. They're like, wow, I never knew. But the knowledge and the rituals and the ways of staying clean are the most primitive and misunderstood in America of all the places I've lived. And so um, my mom would be like, don't tell anyone. I'm going to teach you how to do this. You don't need to tell your friends about this because they'll think you're weird. So we had these like, rituals. Like one was when you get into the bathroom, Take a paper towel while you're waiting to go into the toilet and wet it under the sink and put another paper towel underneath it and then carry that into the toilet stall, like in your public bathroom. And then at the end of excreting, use that watery paper towel to wipe yourself. So at least you get some wipe and then use that second power, uh, paper towel to dry yourself, wrap the whole thing and throw it into the menstrual container that is uh, usually in every toilet. Or if it's not, then, you know, or in the wastebasket. That way you will be clean. And then she trained us that eat enough so that you have your poop in the morning. The human body is actually trained to be nomadic and, and not sit in one place. So you should be able to poop in the morning early, finish your business, and then your bowels kind of shut down for about 24 hours. And then the next morning they want to poop again. You shouldn't be pooping throughout the day. That's an irritated bowel. So all we can talk for an hour about bowel. Bowels are but great subjects. Say it again. Bowels is an inexhaustible topic. It is. It is. And it's an important topic because a lot of people that are full adults don't know about it. But after that, you wash your hands. That's why you took that and moved that out with you to the wherever you went to poop. And you always wash your hands. And if you have um, if you have um, soapy type of like plants around that clean, you wipe on that too, and then you wash with water. Otherwise, we use soap in you know in Western countries. And then after your hands are clean, you take water, either at the river or wherever, and you wash your eyes with cold water. The colder, the better. Your wa your eyes can tolerate very very cold water, and it's actually refreshing. So cold water, because if you think about your eyes, there are lipids. Lipids, oils always take shape in cold and melt in heat. And you don't want your eyes to melt. So 
the function of your eyes should be um, in the cold. So since we have alochaka pitta and we see through the whole day and that heat builds up, it's really good at the beginning of the day and the end of the day to wash your eyes. Or after every meal, I always wash my eyes because they get so hot after food. That's not a good sign. That means you've got excess pitta trying to come out of your body. So you need to look at why you have that residual pitta that's coming out through your eyes. But anyway, so you clean your eyes and then someone your nose and then expel it, expel it, and then with your mouth and then clean your teeth. So they take the powder of the season. So if it's right now, it's um, winter here in Benares. So what is good for phlegmy winter? Darchini, which is cinnamon. Kadira, which is this drying, astringent kind of herb. Everything that's astringent cuts through phlegm. Um, black pepper, um, demulcents that you know clear up phlegm. Like the biggest demulcent is muleti or yashti madhu, which is known as licorice bark. So take those, crush them, make a powder, have it. You know, this is not the time for gooey bentonite clay or for very cooling things like fennel. That's not the time. So don't use those herbs. Use the ones that are warming and melting of phlegm. Put them in a powder, make like a month's worth and keep it in the bathroom. Take a little bit of that powder, stick either um, your finger or a branch or a toothbrush on that powder and then brush. Make sure you get the line between your teeth and your gums, which is called the gingiva. And then rinse out your mouth, scrape the tongue. And then uh, after that's done, if you need it, like you know, let's say you have some TMJ disorder or you have like some jaw problems or you have like teeth problems, then you do gandusha. Gandusha is, I've learned two to five minutes is really tops. I've seen some crazy people do it for 20 minutes and your mouth should be clean. So the sesame oil goes in and not coconut oil, not any other kind of oil. Sesame oil has special properties of penetrating and cleaning out the strokas which you understand are these microchannels. And the biggest microchannels you want to clean out are the ones that are the channels along the sides of your trigeminal and facial nerves and all of their, um, their, their subnerves. And so those all align through the inside of the cheeks. And when the cheek is like this and you open it up to go with guldusha, it opens up slightly and the sesame oil seeps into that space and cleans out any scar tissue or anything that's preventing the nerve from conducting perfectly, which is what's happening when people are getting, you know, like mm-hmm. facial droop or which is called Bell's palsy or some other kind of condition where their um, jaw or their face is not uh, as healthy as it needs to be. But do you put anything in the sesame oil or you just swill it? Never. Never. If anything. you put all kinds of crap in it, you're just going to put that crap into your, actually, there are a couple of exceptions. If you're just doing it for smell, oh, I just love the smell of sandalwood. Okay, it's fake sandalwood. It's probably red sandalwood. It's not going to be good for you because the sesame oil is going to burrow it in, leave it there, and come out. That's not good. But if you have arimedes, which is arimedes is a mouth oil that I actually use post-cancer patients. I use it for people who have mouth like problems, ulcers, and things. That has some herbs in it, but those herbs are specifically made for mouth oil pulling. What about turmeric? Turmeric can be good for brushing the teeth, but I don't know why you would want turmeric in the burrows of your 
nerves. I didn't realize it went in there. I just swill with it because I actually used coconut oil as well before, before you mentioned. Coconut oil is very good for blocking and creating obstacles. So if you have something that you're trying to plug up, like extra mm -hmm. fire, mm -hmm. like let's say you have basmaka, which is where your tikshna agni is too high, and you probably do have some extra agni because your pitta is coming out of your eyes, you might want to block some of the channels. But if you do it in your mouth, you're going to block up the nerves. So Doesn't make sense. Never, yeah, I've had arguments with um, some very famous people who propagate coconut oil pulling. And I will just say that unless the people have some need to create obstacles around the nerves of their mouth, why would you want to do that? You want to clean out because the mouth is a place where you enter evil kinds of mm. stuff. So then after you do that, cleaning your mouth, you basically clean out your eyes, which is your sense of seeing, nose, sense of smell, mouth, sense of taste, and then your hands would just touch. The only thing you haven't done is ears. So you walk out of the bathroom or your place of cleansing with your senses clean, and now you want to fill them with beautiful things to start the day. So you have something called an altar, and that altar is not, I mean, you can call it religious. Obviously, Hindu altars are spiritual and not religious because Hinduism is not a religion, but blah, blah, blah. So for the Hindu folks out there, we'll just tell you it's not a religion. And so this worldview says, Let's take beautiful things and put them into our senses as the first entry of the day. So the rest of the day, your senses are resonating with beauty and truth and loveliness. And so you look at something beautiful. It can be a photo of a baby, a god, a loved one, your parents, whatever. Parents should be dead if you have your photos there. Um, in your ears, you have a bell. You have a conch shell. You have beautiful pudgeons and People sing, right? So you put uh, your ears. You, nice. Yeah, you smell. So you've got either a flower or you've got the agarbati, which is the incense, or you light up a candle, which has got some nice smell to it. Or you've got, you know, think of something that smells good, right? And you've got that on the altar. And it's then, not funny it, how they how they want to make things into a ritual so that people remember it. And people it's not a ritual for that. It's ritual because the connection of the reason with the ritual was interrupted when they forbade Sanskrit. Uh, and so to, in order to survive and hand down the rituals to their kids and their descendants, those people chose they were not going to talk about this anymore because they didn't want it to be decimated by the Mughals, the British, the Mongols, the Greeks, all the people that have invaded. You name it, yeah. Right? So, I mean, why did, why did Columbus go looking for spices? Have you ever thought of that? No. So what was going on between the time Rome fell in 450 and the beginning of the Renaissance, which was 1450, which is a thousand years. What was happening is every 30 to 40 years, half the population, 40 to 50% of the population of every town would be decimated, killed by either the bubonic plague, the black plague, some plague was going through, right? The plague was a disaster. In, in Europe, in Europe. In Europe. Yeah. which was the center of the white universe, right? So that's what they knew. And yet, while that was happening there and Japanese encephalitis was killing people in the Far East. India was fine. Never, never got touched by the plague. You have a continuous history in the books from every century, whether it was Chandragupta, Maria. You might not learn it in your history class because your history class teaches, you know, mm. what it teaches, but... If you go into the books, there's a continuous history of the different kingdoms, the different dynasties, the different 
groups of rulers and all all the way through. So Columbus and was so, uh, on the path for good then? Say it again? Columbus was going to help this out. He was going to fix Europe. So Columbus said, there is something that the Indians have that's keeping them healthy. And the ship, shipping people that used to come across and trade would oftentimes trade. What is the uh, greatest, longest term ambassador of global health? It's Black Pepper and the people that talk about Black Pepper from the Malabar Coast. They came over to uh, what is now Yemen and Saudi Arabia, and they talked to a guy named Mohammed. Which of Mohammed? Be Mohammed. They talked with him and they said, hey, here's this black pepper. We find it's really useful. In our books, it says that if you grind this little round corn, this peppercorn, and you grind it and you put it in your food, it will make the food a little bit pungent, but it will also cut through the phlegm. And if you're sick, like you have a respiratory illness, it cuts through the phlegm. That's why we put black pepper in our food during COVID or had morning drinks with black pepper in it. So it cuts through. Why don't you use it? Mohammed liked it. So did Avicenna, who was the um, founder of the Yunnan medicine. And it spread through the ports up the Red Sea and across to the Western Ocean, which was now called the Mediterranean Ocean. And the Western Ocean um, was full of you know, the Egyptians and the people in um, Istanbul or Constantinople, whatever, and all across Greece and Italy and all. And they would go and they would give um, lectures, which are in India called Kata, during these times when they would deliver the knowledge of whatever they were trading, whatever spices they had, they would give lectures on the philosophy of why these things look like, kind of like the Ayurveda fundamentals lectures, but also Puranas and Gita and different philosophies about how we can know ourselves better. And those, those acoustic rooms where more and more people wanted to come had these kind of um, constructions that were learned in ancient Indian architecture of a guy sitting here and projecting the voice very, very far away. And so those places that were katas became um, conquered after a while by these, these uh, Romans and they called them kata drills. And then they were taken over by the people in Rome who were called the Pope and the Catholics. Mm. And so the Catholics have kata drills, which are cathedrals now. And they're- Ah, there you go. The, the, you know, the church telling what it wants to tell. It doesn't want to tell you how to take care of yourself and know your inner self better. It wants to tell you how to know their God. So that knowledge was going all over and all the spices were being taught. And then the dark ages started and Indians were like, I think I don't want to take the plague back home. We won't travel there. But though they cut off the travel around 450 and when, you know, when the, whole the spice road, spice road, right. The Romans fell. People remembered and they heard about it. So Columbus, a thousand years later, says, I'm going to go and find for you, Queen Isabel, the place that makes the medicine so that we can stop dying. And so he travels and then he, you know, misses the mark and ends up finding America and the Indians and calls them Indians. Why did he call them Indians? Because he was looking for India. What was he looking for in India? The spices. What was the fountain of youth? The fountain of youth is the things that give ojas. And we venture to say that it were probably pasmas, the herbal metallic elements like gold, right, that, that help you stay healthy. Wearing gold necklaces is not an Indian thing because 
people want to show off their wealth. It is a healing element to build immunity. If you wear 20, it's pure uh, gold as you can get, which is 22 carats. If you wear this, it builds your immunity. That's why every Indian woman wears a gold bangle, you know, that she's given at birth or gold earrings because it builds immunity. So these kind of things were known. So they were after the gold, they were after the pasmas, which was, you know, the, the elixirs of youth, the spices. They knew that Indians had this. And it wasn't just Indians. It was the Hindu people, the, the Indus River, right? Those uh, east of the Hindus River, which was the Hindus. But India, the Indian land was from Afghanistan down across the subcontinents, across Burma, down to Indian islands, which is called Indian Asia. So Indonesia, which is where Asia comes from, Indonesia, that whole area of land along the rim of the Indian Ocean was a place where you could trade and find all this stuff. Ayurveda was going on potently in every climate you can think of, from desert to mountain to plains to tropics. And Ayurveda was applicable in different ways, different permutations, different plants, different kinds of foods, depending on the digestive fire according to that weather. And they wanted a part of that. So they decided to come and conquer. And if you read Amitabh Kosha's book, The Nutmeg's Curse, it's about where nutmeg grew and how the Dutch came over and basically decimated the people in order to get mace, which is the, the outer covering of the nutmeg fruit, because nutmeg is so good for the gut. You know, we use it. It's called jatifa. We use it in um, ulcerative colitis and people have gut problems. And Europeans had gut problems and they were getting infectious diseases. In COVID, one of the things we found is that if you keep your gut clean, people didn't get COVID. We know of no one that had Panchakarma between October, let's say September 2019 and February 2020 who got COVID. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that if you had Panchakarma for six months before COVID even like hit the mainstream, why did those people never get sick? Because their guts were clean, because their immune system mm. could talk to the rest of their body. Meanwhile, you have all these people that are filling their body with preservatives, fast foods, dead foods, foods that are not connected to the earth, and they're getting sick. And well, so they say, I- you know, even young people, they sort of help, seemingly healthy people got sick, but when you, if you look at their tongue and it's cut, and it's all white and it's, uh, they're full of armor. And they're full of toxins and yeah, there's, there's, it's like the Petri dish, you know, there's, you can grow the bacteria on it or the That's spread right. the virus. Yeah. Bad bacteria. We have bacteria in our gut, but it's all compatible and talking with our immune system. Yeah. But if it's not, then the immune system's so busy dealing with the garbage in your gut that it doesn't have time or it can't put its full attention on the invading virus. Anyway, so the end of the, uh, morning routine which are oh, back to that yeah i'll try to ask you any questions because i get 15 minute answers so uh, you're a wealth of knowledge i mean i can it'd be a wonderful to study with you i mean you must have students queuing up i mean um well, can, queue off. they just come to the master classes and you're welcome to come to the master class right let's uh, put in a how can people find these master classes because the, how should people follow you because everyday ayurveda is the book they have to buy well and then they don't have to buy it but they can um, if they're ready, not everyone deserves Ayurveda. Um, <laughs> I'm not going with that, by the way. <laughs> I know it won't be very popular, but it is very true. And you should consider its deep and inner meanings if you do a meditation on it. Okay. 
it will really, it will really bring up a lot of stuff for you. It brings up a lot of stuff for me, which is why I keep saying it because it really challenges me to work harder, to bring Ayurveda clear so mm -hmm. that people will find that as a natural option. Just like a kid who chooses between a cookie and an apple, it's mm -hmm. determined somehow. Kids actually prefer the apple. They don't like the cookie. So this is why they've invented all kinds of cartoon characters around these bad foods so the kids will be attracted to eating. Uh, yeah. There's been so many studies done on this that show that kids naturally want that healthy thing. So what do we have that are the cartoon characters around modern medicine that attract Westerners to go to this rather than go to the option that you and I naturally love, right? So the website that people can go to is drimpossibility.com. And in there is an area that says uh, education, learning, it's called Dinacharya. And I'll take you over to the website for Dinacharya masterclasses. I invite anyone that's had a beginning series on Ayurveda to join the masterclasses. People join at all different intermediate and advanced levels. Um, and it's very special. The masterclasses are very, very special. I get that. I learn. We all, even the teachers, the teacher that was talking last night was amazing. We're talking about Himas and Fanta Kalpana and how they are excellent emergency medicines for stroke and for just conditions that we have learned in Western medicine are untreatable. And she was just very casually talking about them. And the students were all, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, very excited. And at the end of it, she said to me, it is such a wonderful thing for me to teach here because the students have such good questions. I teach all over, she's all over the world. My teachers all teach all over the world. And they don't find students who are as committed. <laughs> and so for me, it's so wonderful to have these amazing questions. And when I do retreats to India and, you know, we're sitting there around these Indian Ayurvedic doctors, like your students know so much more than <laughs> the other people come on retreats. How come? And I said, because they're actually curious. And they get fed up to their level of digestifier with the information accurately. And that's connected to the energy, the bioelectric energy. And that is why they keep growing with uh -huh. this amazing, authentic curiosity and authentic love for Ayurveda. So it is a very special place. I love my students and I, you know, I'm so grateful to them for bringing out those questions that make all the teachers go dive deeper and learn how to speak with more clarity. So it's a real-time class. It's not just pre-recorded video of a teacher speaking. Uh, it is recorded because there are a lot of people that have life happening. And so, right. you know, we have a lot of doctors in the group that then suddenly have to leave. They're in clinic. They have to turn off the screen. They've got a patient. And so we have the recording so they can go back and listen. And as students catch on, they might say, several of them have said, well, I'll do the curtain quarter 14, but I want to start at quarter one. So they do this at their own pace while they're doing 14. And then they catch up over, you know, it usually takes a couple of years for them to, to listen to all the classes and digest them. Um, and then I do some, some intensives, some done intensives on the use of gems, gemstones for medicinal purposes, both inside as bishti and pasla, and also on the outside, like as rings or jewelry. We've done special courses on women's health where we talked about the practical, you know, things around whether it's menstruation or pregnancy. Most people don't know how to do pregnancy. And that's a real sad thing today because they're having unnecessary um, 
not only deliveries, but also the sequelae after that. Oh, it's crazy. It doesn't be that way. Prasuti Tantra has been around and Indians have been having a lot of babies for the last you know, few thousand years. Um, and we have special courses. But the every week without interruption, Wednesday masterclass is um, the gem. Um, and then, of course, there is uh, the first book, Everyday Ayurveda, and then I'm finishing up a second book on Ayurvedic nutrition, which will be exciting. And then there is my work with uh, Ayurvedic physicians, learning how to communicate with laypersons about Ayurvedic nutrition. Oh, that's important. Read your articles. Yeah, it's at ayurveda.in. So it's spelled A-Y-U-V-E, kind of a take on veg or vegan vegetarian uh so iuv.in and this is a series held at the indic academy and as fellowship director i help all these indian ayurvedic physicians learn how to write all kinds of articles and um, features and, and interviews and recipes for anyone that wants to learn better nutrition and the reasons why my thing is I want to talk about the scientific reasons and the logical and the practical reasons of why. So we can reattach this information that you and I have learned as practitioners and doctors with the scientific, the logical, the kind of yukti, right? The thing that makes sense between what we do and why we do it. And that's that's what we do at the Nijari Institute. Well, I'm fully inspired. I'm going to do a song on Dinacharya. And I wish we could keep talking. I should be like Joe Rogan and do a three-hour podcast. You'd be the perfect guest. You keep going. Who? Joe Rogan is another. <laughs> he does a three-hour podcast? Yeah, wow. Three to four hours, yeah. I think we've been on for like an hour and, I mean, really talking for like an hour and 10 yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this has been, I know I could keep going because, I mean, you've got, you're so interesting and Ayurveda is a is an endless, endless mine of, of information. We haven't even got past... Um, we haven't even got past um, the sh- the your morning altar. As a whole. Well, let's finish that so you can clip that back in. Okay, please. all right. Ready? So clip here. Okay. <laughs> so once you have filled your nose, now you're going to fill your mouth with something sweet. So oftentimes you'll see little raisins or cashew nuts or little sugar um, mystery candies in the altar area. And that is what that is for. Um, sometimes people will put something else that's sweet on their tongue that has just been sitting at the feet of the divine. And then you always have a soft, either petal of a flower or a soft silk cloth or soft cotton. You will always notice the cloth there. And people say, well, why can't I just plastic there? I mean, because it's not, for a, it's not lovely to the touch. So now you've filled all five senses with something wonderful, loving, and su. Su means to invite harmony. So you have su drishti, su gandha, su rasa, su um, uh, sound. <laughs> I can't think of the word. And su sparsha. And that is um, going to start your day in a wonderful way. And so if you can Start with that and then leave your cleansing space, let's say your bathroom, and then head to the kitchen and have your first water. That's it. That's your early morning routine. That, if you do it every day and get good at it, 
it takes me about 11 minutes to do all of that. That's including time, you know, pooping and cleaning and all that, everything. And usually there's one more step that we take in the modern day, which is that you can just look at yourself in the mirror and make sure that this is what I want to present to the outside world. So that includes taking that piece of hair that's here and combing it back or making sure you don't have like a little piece of, you know, something on your, your face that you don't want the outside world to see. And now you go and you present yourself to he who gives us life, the sun. And it is, you know, even if you take 40 minutes to get through your early morning routine, you're still outside on the rooftop, in the backyard, on the patio, out on a walk, in, you know, in a clearing in the forest. You are there before the sun rises up. And now you get your 15 minutes of infrared. And now your day can begin. So that early morning routine that allows you to be prepared will actually make you more, not only uh, happy. I mean, I use this routine to help a lot of people pull themselves out from depression. Uh, I'm not saying they shouldn't medicate themselves, but if they do this next to medication, they often find they can then go to the doctor and say, I don't need this medication anymore. And I want to wean from it. And many people want to wean and uh, they find themselves using other herbal things instead and then feeling better and then finding that karma, that creative reason why they are on the earth today. And once they create and you know, connect to that, a lot of their health problems change. I have had people write to me after reading Everyday Ayurveda and you know we're over 100,000 now. So there's like a whole bunch of thousands of people have written to me. And the most surprising thing that I've seen is they say, I started doing my Dhinacharya and Dr. Bhattacharya, I want to tell you, my thyroid problems went away. And when I first heard it, I was like, what? Why would your thyroid, I'm, I'm an allopath, right? Why would your thyroid problems go away? And then I realized it's those clock genes going from the pineal through the hypothalamus, through the pituitary, down to the master hormone gland thyroid. And when your clock genes are in order, producing the thing, and handing it off at the right time to the next thing, you can look at any circadian clock on the scientific, you know, literature kind of images and see that there are times of the day that different proteins, different hormones, different chemicals are getting produced through the day. And if you can make your vinacharya through the day aligned with those, but especially your early morning routine, even if every other part of the day is unpredictable, can do that part, you set up your clock genes to be like a car factory that produces the axle before the leather seats, right? Yeah, you don't want to produce all of the stuff here and then not use it, which is what a lot of people do. Well, there's so many people have thyroid problems now, especially women. It's an epidemic of thyroid issues. Yeah, because they're not falling on their morning routine. Now, many people shouldn't get up before dawn. Pregnant women, elderly, people are convalescing, people that are like jet lagged. But the ones that are in a stable environment and can do their early morning routine should do it. And they will find a level of energy that will be an excess. And that excess energy actually allows your body to say, okay, now I can prioritize healing because I'm not going to be busy trying to take care of fighting fires in the body and emergencies in the body. Um, and so the Dhinacharya doesn't just refer to the early morning routine. There's, you know, there's how to take a bath, there's how to live life, which is called sadvita. I call it yoga off the map. There's the preparation for the evening and having a right ratricharya, which is night routine. Ratri means night, just like thing means day. 
There's Raticharya, which is about your sexual life and your intimate life. And there's Ritucharya, which is about how to adjust your daily routine for the ritual. So I take my bath earlier in the morning in the summers because I'm so hot than I do in the winters. And also the sun rises sooner. So I get up earlier. I take my bath earlier. In the winter, I do it slightly differently because I want the water to be warmer and I need to get a few other things done in the morning because I'm more sluggish because of the um, cold weather. So if you learn these different things, there's so much, so much um, you can resurrect in your body. And, you know, I always say that Ayurveda really teaches you that your health is your responsibility, which is in complete contrast with what the Western developed nations are saying, because they really believe that national health service means that your health and your disease is not your fault. It's someone else's fault or something else's fault. Mm. It's just nature. And now here's the patriarchal medical system that's going to take over your body. Well, and buy, take- buy our product and we'll fix it. Exactly. Ivan says, I'm sorry, but I need to tell you that the decisions that you made to do X, Y, and Z are probably why you have this imbalance, illness, disease, or terminal state. Because this is a spectrum, this is a continuum that you created by the decisions you made. Maybe out of Padnyaparad, which is you know ignorance or lack of respect for your inner gut instinct. But you did it and you need to take responsibility that just as you did it, you need to pull yourself out of it. That is not a very popular view for people who are, you know. Well, not everyone uh, deserves Ayurveda. Do that again. <laughs> do that again. I, uh, uh, not everyone deserves Ayurveda. Okay. I love it. <laughs> I know you can make a song out of this. You don't have to make it be the song for this video, but. It's going to hum in your mind and you're going to come back to it and you're going to write to me and say, guess what? I've got it. And you're going to find it. It might not be a very politically correct song, but you know what? It is, it is really true. Um, I just want to also say that the medicines that are so elegantly made in Ayurveda, like the pasmas that take hundreds and hundreds of hours, thousands of hours, and many of the formulations that require plants that are now on the endangered list because we're encroaching with our, you know, environmental rudeness. Um, there's not enough medicine of those types for everyone. So if you don't handle your diet and your lifestyle, and then you get to the place where you need those medicines, we don't have enough for everyone. So it's better that you don't use Ayurveda unless you're really loyal to it because like, I can't get everyone this. Right now, everyone should be having Chavan Prash. The government was telling everyone to take Chavan Prash last year in the middle of the summer. That's not the time to have Chavan Prash. And Chavan Prash shouldn't have preservatives in it. It should be made in the right way. So we make it here in Benares. It's absolutely, absolutely pure, wonderful stuff. And it is so healing and it brings people back. A lot of people have come back. I am better than I was before COVID. I'm healthier. I'm more resilient. I have better energy. My routines are better. People are like breaking up and falling apart after COVID. And the few of us have really been tested. Hey, how well do you do Ayurveda? You teach it, you talk about it, you sing about it, and you compose about it. But how well do you do it? Mm-hmm. The test is in COVID. Did you do your yoga every day? Did you cook every day? Did you do this and this and this every day? If you did, 
you're stronger now than you were before COVID. I am. <laughs> I think it's been so inspiring. Thank you, Vaswati. I really. hope I didn't take your schedule off too far. No, no, it's super inspiring. It's all about the schedule. This is talking about the Jinnacharya is, is second only to doing it. So I'm really going to give, you know, speaking to you is really up my game as well. So while I'm working on this song, I'm really going to improve my routine. And thank you for the, for the wake up. Really true. It's really true. Do it and then send me an email and let me know how it goes. And then I'll wait for the song. All right. Great. All right. Take care. No. Bye-bye. Waking up before the sun, you have your motions one by one Clean out the kaffir from your head, accumulate it while in bed Clean the teeth and scrape the tongue, gargle with oil and I'll be younger I get tired of the rules Nasal drops, salute the sun, wash your body when you're done Meditate and then hydrate, break your fast very late Exercise December to May to only half capacity Well I get tired of the rules But every time I go At dusk or dawn, only breathing through the nose Never eating when the right one's closed All six tastes in every meal The ratio for how you feel I get tired of the rules Avoiding incompatible foods Mixing with fruit, it precludes Then you lie on your left side While you digest what's inside Control the body, speech and mind Granting gifts and being kind I get tired of the rules
Or living a life that's filled with dharma Pursuing only pleasure and karma Not believing all you see But not suspect conspiracy Perfect the skill of adoring others Sharing profits as with brothers Of loving, living alone Compassion for all is always shown And having the long life and the health The reputation and the wealth Who's tired of the Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show and the song. If you want to hear the song again, it's available on all music streaming services or for a $1 download from podsongs.com. You can also subscribe there for our newsletter, for all other news and updates. A big thanks to our musical production team here in Italy, Maurizio Sanicola, Massimino Vozza and Luigi Falcione, and my researcher, Dori Verbo. Please help us by sending this episode to your friends, sharing it on social media, and reviewing it wherever you can. I also have another show to listen to. It's called The Mystic Cast, and it's about spirituality, UFOs, mysticism, the occult, and the Ethereum Society, the teachings of which led me to start this project, serving the service, helping those who help others. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a great day.